Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the True Grit Podcast, where we believe that personal growth and helping each other solve important problems is the best way to make the world a better place. I'm your host, Craig Couch, and every week it's my job to interview top performers and unlock the secrets of their success so that you and I can apply some of their thought patterns, daily rituals, and strategies to our own missions. And my next guest is Stan Dobbs who has a rare combination um, that you don't see very often of an entrepreneurial spirit and a heart for God um, and advancing the cause of Christ through what he calls the shot clock, which we'll get into. Uh, Stan has founded several awesome uh, business trees, as he calls them, which is a combination of a business and a ministry, uh, which we'll get into what that means. Um, It's pretty exciting. Um, some of these include uh, Apartment Life and uh, also the Lionheart's Children's Academy. Uh, he's also incredibly beaten back a terminal cancer diagnosis and has completed an Ironman. So <laughs> that is just incredible. Uh, Stan and I became fast friends and are about to have a dynamic conversation that I'm super excited about. Uh, will span a wide range of meaningful topics. And uh, without further ado, uh, Stan, welcome to the True Grit Podcast. Hey, thank you, Craig. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So an Iron Man, huh? Yeah. Unfortunately, that feels like it was a, in a whole nother lifetime. But yes, I did uh, achieve that in 2009. 2009? And how old were you in 2009? Oh, let's see. Rough let's math. See. Born in 63, so that was probably, I was 40 maybe. That's just like, I mean, just the training alone, because it, just for people that are, are, are not are, are not familiar with this, uh, an Ironman includes, and then you'll have to help me with the swims, I don't know the distance, but it's a, basically a, your first swim, how far do you swim? 2.4. 2.4 miles, then you ride a bike for? 112. 112 miles, then you run a marathon. Right. Yeah, all in one day. <laughs> Did it kill you? What was that like? <laughs> it was actually, you know what, it's funny. We just started out, it kind of started out as a, a community builder in one of the companies. And we uh, anybody that wanted to do their first triathlon, it was a sprint triathlon. And so we got about 20 or 30 of our staff to train together. And we did a sprint triathlon down at Baylor uh, in Dallas. And for me, it just kind of built from there, went from sprints to Olympics to half, and then ultimately said, okay, I might as well. I'll never be in this kind of shape ever again. So I'll give it a whirl. Unbelievable. And which Ironman did you do? Panama City. Panama City. Wow. That's pretty incredible. And so how many in your team actually did the Ironman? No one else did did an Ironman, but we had a lot that went on to run their first marathons and and really achieve, you know, some pretty cool physical feats. That was really my goal. I just wanted to push people to to uh, to, to think outside the box and what they could do. And it was really encouraging to see how many people achieve kind of their personal, you know, stretch them, stretch yeah. them physically. That's incredible. And there's a, there's a lot to be said um, about fitness and productivity, right? Like those yes. two things lined up. Not only that, you actually killed multiple birds with one stone, which was uh, better health. And also this, this team vibe of like, oh my gosh, you know, you're surely you're not going to eat that. Don't you have to run in the morning type conversations around the office? I can only imagine what that would be like. We have yeah. a, we have a, quite a few really good athletes in our, uh, in our nest of, uh, of, of, and on our staff too. And it's, it's fun to, to talk about what we're eating, what we're not eating, uh, how bad we felt because of what we just ate. Uh, there's a lot of those kind of conversations rolling around in our office, but you, you look like you're an athlete. What's your, uh, uh, sport of choice? Well, it's not swimming and it's not running. I don't run unless somebody's chasing me. <laughs> and because I can fight, I still don't run because I'd rather fight you than run from you. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I ride my bike uh, mainly. I'm, I'm a cyclist. I competed for years and then stopped. Uh, now I'm more of a team mascot than anything. Uh, okay. But I ride my bike and I do yoga three or four times a week. 
All right. Have you ever done Hotter Than Hell? No, I've not. It was not part of the racing circuit uh, that our team did. Um, so we never did it. It's it's kind of more of one of those, we call them uh, t-shirt rides. Uh, yes. And then over the years, they've developed an actual race that, that coincides with it. Um, but I've not ridden that. And I don't know if I ever will. <laughs> It, it's a unique deal. You get 10,000 riders. It's a big deal for uh, Amarillo. Wichita Falls. Yeah, I'm yeah, Wichita Falls. yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, so we have a ton to cover today, um, but I kind of want to start out with something that, that you know, I think is, you know, because you kind of straddle this, this ministry and then business um, idea. And, you know, I've, I've, I've been uh, a Christian um, since I was 15 years old, um, and and I've gotten the feeling over the years that that Christians have really lost quite a bit of credibility. Um, and I'm just you've been in this space for 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 many many years, and so I'm just curious, you know, as you look stand across the landscape of our culture, what what are you seeing? Oh, I think there certainly is a segment of the body of Christ that has lost credibility on a number of different fronts. Uh, The particular front that I'm most interested in is the intersection of uh, faith or theology with what we're coming to know about the world from science. And how do we synchronize those two things and not create this false dichotomy like there's two different truths in the world? One is physical. spiritual and one is sort of natural or scientific. And so that's really a part for me, if the body of Christ is going to continue to to be meaningful, I guess, uh, moving forward, it's going to have to come to grips and create a synthesis so that all truth is harmonized together. You know, and that obviously includes what we're, our growing knowledge of the world, the cosmos, humans, and in uh, our history. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I think that you're right. There is a real distinct separation and almost a reverse judgment. Um, you know, as a Christian, if I'm around, if I'm sitting around a table, you know, at a pub or something with a bunch of super duper smart science type people that I know aren't believers, I might feel like they would think I'm a dummy for being a Christian <laughs> because of that separation. Is that the separation you're talking about? Well, it's like, you know, there's a certain segment of the body of Christ that still wants to hold views uh, that are clearly uh, not aligned with what uh, science is now beyond, you know, almost beyond proof. Uh, For example, the age of the earth, you know, if you're still a a Christian that believes that the earth is 6,000 years old and, um, you know, it's just, it's not no longer attainable to be intellectually honest and, 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 and hold that. I'm just using that as one example of many. Um, so, so it's more of those things. How do we, how do we align? And the church has done this for 2000 years. You know, we continually reinterpret and uh, reframe our understanding. Uh, just like when we found the, you know, sun wasn't the, the earth wasn't the center of the solar system, right? It's the sun. Mm-hmm. And so that there's uh, it, it's those types of things that I think we have to continually uh, reevaluate and, and reframe as, as we get more knowledge. Well, I, I, I appreciate that. And I'd, I'd like to shift gears and, and talk a little bit about how uh, you started out at Compaq um, in the computer world. Uh, and then, you know, I'm assuming that you, you had some sort of dissatisfaction in that, um, in that space and decided to go to, to drop that and go to seminary. Can you can you speak to that process? Um, because you know there are a lot of people that are that really don't like their job. Um, there are a lot of people that haven't found their thing. Um, and so, what would you say to those people as it relates to your particular transition? Um. Well. Well, in my case, it wasn't uh, rooted out of dissatisfaction at all. In my particular case, I was really loving, enjoying life at Compaq. At the, it, I don't know if you remember in those years, but Compaq was really the darling company of the computer industry. And 
very innovative, entrepreneurial. So it was a wonderful place to be. I had just had this, for lack of a better way to say it, kind of this life-altering encounter, spiritual encounter. Uh, I didn't grow up religious, had never really given a whole lot of thought to spiritual things. So uh, I had this encounter that really um, led me, and I felt led to pursue a different direction. So it certainly wasn't, in my case, out of any dissatisfaction. It was more just this life-altering encounter that I had with uh, with uh, with Jesus Christ that 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 kind of put me on a whole new trajectory. Okay, so it was less about the. It was less that you didn't necessarily just hate where you were. It was more of a of a of an epiphany. For uh, sure. Okay. Definitely, definitely be. Okay. Well. You know, you, uh, you the other day we were talking um, and you just you mentioned um, how you're you've not worked a day in the last 30 years, which means that you have landed um, in a. In a vocation that really fulfills you and it wasn't something that happened overnight, um, but speak to how how someone goes about finding mm. that thing because it, you know i feel the same way um i didn't feel it in my first gig um in fact the last few years um as a owner of a retail store i i began to really loathe it um mm. and needed to get the heck out of there um and so I knew for sure that I where I was it wasn't exciting to me. But but the last twenty years, pretty much, I've been living in that space, and it's so fulfilling. How would you say someone would go about landing on that um, on that 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 sweet spot? That thing, you know, that's a hard uh, question to answer, Craig. I think that's so individual and personal, but I do think there are some things that we can do to prepare ourselves for what that may end up being. And as I think back on uh, Vicki and I's journey, one of the things that really set us up well was that we made a decision to live very frugally early on in our marriage. So we did not live at our means or above our means. We lived below our means. And we did that very intentionally in the house that we chose, the cars that we bought. Uh, and, and, and I really think, and that was frankly a lot of her wisdom. You know, I'm more the, you know, let's go out and buy it. But I, looking back on it now is I'm now 56. That really set us up and gave us the margin that when the thing came, and typically that comes with some risk, right? If you want to chase the thing, that comes with financial risk. That comes with a lot of layers of risk. And if you haven't prepared yourself, if you're overextended, uh, frankly, you're. You know, a lot of times I see guys that are just trapped because they, they've got so much to just, you know, uh, um, feed the monkey, you know, that, that they, they, they have no room to maneuver even if they wanted to. Yeah. So so that would be just one thing I would say is if you can try to, in the early years, uh, live at or below your means, um, then that then that sets you up well when that thing comes. And as you know, that's that's different for everybody when and how and where uh, that the thing comes. <laughs> Golly, Stan, that's such good advice. You know, I, I, I did it opposite. <laughs> I just did. You know, I got my kids into private school and then it was like, I couldn't believe how trapped I felt in that whole thing and how freaking expensive it was. And, uh, and, and so then there was this element of grind to keep up and your, your approach of living below your means to provide the margin Oh man, I wish I would have, uh, I wish you could have been in my ear back then. <laughs> well, that's a hard, that's a hard thing to do, right? There's so many cultural forces that are pushing us the other way. Absolutely. It's a very, very hard thing to, and I was fortunate again to, that I had a wife that was equally yoked in that. 
you yeah. know, and she, and, and she was more than comfortable, in fact, wanted to live that way as well. So in that in that time, now, this is an anachronism. We lived off one income like we both worked for Compact, but we, we did our budget based on one income. And in our case, that allowed her the freedom to stay home and raise the children, which she had a passion to do. Yeah. Uh, and it and it really set us up for what God had in store. And then ultimately to be able to have the freedom to go launch uh uh, I consider myself a, a serial spiritual entrepreneur. So I enjoy launching these new things. But if you're, if you're out there kind of, you know, barely making, making ends meet with paying for all your house and toys and cars, you know, it's just very, very hard to do it. Right. Right. Well, and you're right about the wife part. Um, it turns out that a frugal wife is pretty sexy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it just is. I've yeah, got one. I agree. I married a West Texas girl and that she is so frugal and it's awesome. <laughs> so knuckle bump to you. We're very blessed in that way for sure. Uh, cause I'm, I'm, I'm not that frugal and I'm, I'm sort of the spender. Uh, but anyway, it's, it's been quite a ride, but so, uh, so you, you're at compact and, uh, and then, you have this spiritual experience, which pulls you to a new chapter, which is going to seminary. So kind of walk me through what that, what those years were like. Yeah, that was a total curveball. I mean, we just, Vicki and I had never contemplated anything like that. But again, she was right there with me. There wasn't any uh, tension in that. We both sensed that was the right direction, but mm-hmm. really had no clue what that even meant, you know? And so it was, it was really kind of just stepping out into the gray, just, just like if you were starting a business or something else. Um, but we moved back to Fort Worth and went through seminary and I got a job at a church, which uh, I was laughing kind of like you were talking about your retail experience. That was frankly soul sucking for me to, to work inside of a church uh, and I recognized that I need a little bit more sandbox to play in than what I found in a typical church. So uh, it was all part of the process. But yeah, so we moved to Fort Worth and that really uh, put us on a whole new direction, moved us back to the Metroplex where we've been since then, lived in the same house we bought right right after seminary. We've been here for 30 years and uh, we live in the mid cities out by the airport. Okay, so you're in your mid 30s at this point, and while you were in seminary, that's when, based on the timeline we've discussed, that's when you were diagnosed with 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 cancer and was told that you had 10 years to live. Yeah, that was a curveball on top of a slider. Uh, I got to seminary and uh, had been there about six months when I felt this lump in the back of my neck. And uh, ended up getting it checked out. I didn't have any other symptoms other than that, just this lump. And ended up that I had non-Hodgkin's lymphoma that they said was incurable. And roughly 10 years was kind of the the ballpark. So that was uh, in 96. So, um, yeah. Yeah, just 25 years ago. And so I've got to know a couple of things. Um, and, and, you know, to be told that you have 10 years, um, based on a trusted source, the doctor and what, what goes, what went through your mind at that moment? Um, I'm, I'm just trying to put myself in your shoes, Stan. Um, you know, cause you're, you're, you've made this transition away from kind of this secular job into doing this seminary thing to, to ostensibly advance the cause of Christ. And then your health craps out. Yeah. Tell me what's going through your head. It you know, as you can imagine, it was definitely dizzying, uh, trying to figure out what was going on. Now, to say you've got 10 years, that's a lot better than say you got one year. So, uh, right. So, <laughs> yeah. And, and we started, you know, of course, I went into research mode and we ended up doing a lot of experimental stuff, which was kind of cool uh, that that uh, pushed me along. So it, I wish I could say that it was like this. Um, 
you know, deep, fearful time. I actually don't remember it that way. It's like, okay, this is the next, you know, next thing that we've got to deal with. And, uh, but it certainly was disorienting. I think I told you, I subsequently call it my divine diagnosis because it kind of shut down the direction that we thought we were headed in mm. terms of kind of our ministry direction mm. and, and open, open the door ultimately almost very directly open the door to the launch of apartment life, which was my first business street. Mm. And so, uh, and then, and then it was used, can the cancer was used again to launch the second one in 2011. So cancer has been this weird uh, thread in my story, but actually in a very positive way, if, as weird as that sounds, I call it my divine diagnosis. <laughs> yes. Well, that's a that's a good way to frame it. No, no question about it. And yeah. you know, as a guy, that it it's funny because um, I have this lens about cancer, um, just this like this point of view that I think is really off, and it's mainly off because I've not had someone close to me get cancer. Um, and so even the nomenclature that surrounds it, all the, the details that surround it, uh, I, I've just never experienced it. Um, and, and so, and I'm actually, there's a couple of things that, that I'd love to know from your point of view, because you've, you've experienced this. If, for example, um, I have a friend that, um, that gets cancer. Um, and it's more than acquaintance, but maybe not my very, very closest friend, but just like just a friend, uh, a decent friend. What, what are some things that, that I should do as that friend? And what are some things that I should not do as that friend? Hmm. One of the things that wore on me a little bit, and it's all out of the best intentions, but everybody has the uh, quack cure, right? So uh, I, I got all sorts of, hey, you need to drink this juice or smoke this leaf or, you know, whatever, whatever it was. And that was a little bit um, tough for me to deal with. Everybody had good intentions, but it was like, hey, you need to do, you know, try this thing. Um, but 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 honestly, it's just like any dealing with anybody else is going through some kind of a crisis. I think it was just the presence and the and the trying to, to join us in that that walk, as opposed to say this or don't say this. You know, you um, I found it was just people wanting to be present and uh, and love us love us through it. Presence. And so what kind of, I really, just excuse me, I just really want to dive into this one little piece. What kind of presence are you talking about? Well, that they, we, we knew that they were, they were available, um, that when they came over, it didn't, the whole thing didn't have to be around cancer. It was, you know, we could do life, normal life. It didn't have to feel this stress to, you know, how it is. It's, you know, the elephant in the room and, and, uh, you don't want to add to the weirdness of conversations. And so we enjoyed just people continuing to be friends and it wasn't like we couldn't talk about it, but it wasn't, didn't have to be the, the center of the, you know, the center of the party. <laughs> so right. I think it's more that kind of stuff. Yeah. So don't, don't necessarily deny the elephant, acknowledge the elephant and let's, let's still have fun. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. That's just great. Yeah. Well, that's so helpful. Um, you know, it was really interesting, you know, from my lens, it feels like, you know, if I find out that I've got a certain amount of time left to live from the doctor and, you know, from my point of view, that's like really, really tough. Um, and I just because I've never experienced it, but I'm interested in how I'm interested in your attitude. It seems as though um, you put this diagnosis in a category of, okay, this new reality is a part of my life. And now, uh, what's next? In other words, you know, I, I feel like when, when bad things happen to, um, to people that are wired like you, 
there's a certain there's a certain attitude that comes around, um, and I'm I'm interested in the source of that attitude, and 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 how can that attitude be developed? Um, because you're you didn't respond as a victim; you were a victim of this diagnosis. Yet at the same time, you didn't stop moving, and that just seems so impressive to me. Like that's how does somebody develop that kind of grit for lack of a better word you know i think doesn't that have to come back to our our worldview craig i mean right if if we uh come at, at life through the perspective of uh this is it you know we got one lap and it's over and done and bye you know versus a what i was fast becoming aware is a much broader worldview that encompassed the spiritual dimension and the concept of things beyond, mm. then obviously that, right, that comes directly into play. And at some point we either believe our own BS or we don't. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well said. Yeah. Well said. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, um, you know, so let's, let's shift over to the, the divine part. So you, you, um, you called it a divine diagnosis, which caused a an inflection point or a uh, maybe an on ramp to something new. And you mentioned that's how apartment life was born. So you were at this church. You were like, "It's not the church. I need a bigger." You called it a sandbox. Uh, talk about the on ramp to um, to this new venture, apartment life. Yeah. So the the Vicky and I were considering doing something overseas as part of our first assignment. And that's what got shut down with the diagnosis. And so it really forced us to redirect, you know, what, what might be happening locally. And, and I had just joined up on a church and, and, and they had, they were doing some ministry in, a, in apartment communities that I got involved in and became very intrigued by and mm-hmm. saw uh, the fruitfulness of that. Um, but then also began to see a business opportunity because uh, one of the big uh, problems uh, that apartment owners face is high turnover. Average resident turnover is like 75% a year in a, in a typical apartment. And that's very expensive. Wow. The owner, that'll, cost them, that'll cost them three quarters of a million dollars a year in direct turnover cost. And so part of the idea was, well, hey, how could we help apartment owners lower their turnover rate? by helping them create this sense of community and connectedness that would anchor people more deeply in the apartment and thus renew their lease uh, and help apartment owners make more money. But the byproduct of that was that we would put people of faith uh, into these communities to really be ambassadors for, for Christ and the gospel. So hence the term business tree, it's, it's kind of got a dual function. It's, It's serving a legitimate business purpose but it also has a dimension of uh, ministry outcomes that it seeks. So that's what we mean by the term business tree. Right. Well, it's, you know, you're, you felt, I'm guessing you felt a little bit caged in by the, the church approach, uh, which describe the, describe the difference because you, you've got this apartment life as a, as a ministry that's actually adding value to, to the apartment owner. Um, and I just see this, this, this entrepreneurial piece putting, uh, putting energy in inside of you to create something that, um, that stands on its own two feet. So describe to, to, to me, how, how that works. What's the relationship between the, the apartment owner and apartment life? So you've, you've talked about a little bit, but I'd like you to expand on, on the value there that you're giving the apartment complex owner. Yeah. So yeah, apartment life is a 501c3 nonprofit uh, organization. So it's distinct from the church, right? It's its own entity. And the the service that we provide is we go and find these couples, usually they're married couples from the church community uh, Mm -hmm. to move in to to a specific apartment. And part of their incentive is we give them a a subsidized unit. So they get a highly subsidized rent in exchange for providing this service to the apartment owner. 
that will lower his turnover rate and make more make make the property more money. So that's really what we do is we we find these couples, we train them, we uh, manage them, we 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 have all the systems and processes in place to provide this service to apartment owners now on a on a nationwide basis. We now have five over five hundred of these couples living in apartments all over the country. Wow. And so tell me about the difference. So you said that there was a 75% turnover in these apartment complexes. Um, what's the, what's been the impact so far and how long has apartment life been around? 20 years. 20 years. Okay. Tell so me about we'll, uh, we, We've been able to measure that over the years and we'll lower the turnover rate anywhere five to 10 percentage points, which will generate in excess of $100,000 a year in NOI uh, to the property. So cost of our service is all in, let's say 25,000. So they'll get a 4X return uh, on their investment in the program through reduced turnover. And there's some other benefits as well, but the retention is the big one. Wow. And is there, uh, is there, is it always a couple that you move into these apartment complexes or sometimes it's, Sometimes it's two singles. It, it's almost always in pairs because just the workload they they can they can sh- uh, share that among the among the team. But it's almost always teams of two. What have been some of the uh, some of the other outcomes? Um, you know, you've got some really interesting. Um, you know, you've you've got a, a spiritual motivation um, to love on the I guess love on the tenants in a way. Uh, what have been some of those uh, describe, tell me, tell me a couple of stories of, of some of these outcomes over the years. You talking about the spiritual outcomes? Yeah. Oh my gosh. You, you, you can imagine Craig, but I mean, most of our teams, when they move in and start doing this work within just a matter of a few months, they'll come back to us and say, this has been the most life transforming thing I've ever done as a follower of Christ. Cause it sort of forces you to live a, an outreach oriented, you know, uh, uh, others focused lifestyle. So for example, they welcome every new resident that moves in. They, they plan all the social functions in the community. They're, they're like the chaplain, right? When someone has a diagnosed with cancer, you know, they're the ones that are called to really provide a a response. Uh, so they do all the things that Christians kind of want to do anyway. Uh, but it puts them in a privileged position to be able to do it. And so we've seen thousands of people uh, either come to faith for the first time or, or re- reconnect with their faith uh, and then get them plugged into a local church. That's another key part of it is that we uh, are always typically in a partnership with a nearby church. And so this relation, this is so cool. Um, and this is, this is this movement really that you've created um, is is funded by the guys that own the apartment complexes because of the business value. That's a critical principle in business tree is that rather than most ministries having to go fundraise all the time, we would rather generate our own value through the business model. <laughs> that is so cool. That is that is. I'm just curious. Is there have there been any other examples of this business tree model um, that you admire? Um, are there, do you have like a mentor in the, in the effort? Um, is there like a, a mastermind circle of people that are doing similar things like this? Or is this, are you guys kind of a one-off approach? Uh, there are certainly other examples to varying degrees. If you think about a Christian, a typical Christian camp like Pine Cove or Sky Ranch, they'll have a decent amount of their expenses covered by quote operating revenue. Uh, right through the tuitions paid. A, a Christian hospital would be another example. There's a, a ministry called Marketplace Ministries that puts corporate chaplains into corporations and they sell it as a HR value proposition so that they get most of their costs covered by the fees. So there's different iterations of ministries that have some type of integrated revenue model, uh, but I would say they're pretty few in the total in the total sea of nonprofits, it's a pretty small pond. Yeah. Well, I think it's such a really, such a great, great, um, it's such a great model um, because it, you don't, you're not raising support, um, which 
which makes it, in my view, it makes it more scalable. Because you can really grow. I mean, you've got hundreds of, of families that have moved into these apartment complexes. Um, what is your plan um, for scaling uh, even more? Is it like, is it just nonstop? Are you, you hit your capacity? What's it's it, it's nonstop. The new CEO of Apartment Life, Pete Kelly, has got a 50 year vision to to be able to serve any apartment community in the world. Uh, uh, and that'll obviously be contextually different, uh, but we're already expanding into Canada and uh, some other countries. So the basic economics of this are so crystal clear that 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 will drive the scalability. You know, it's kind of become mainstream in the apartment industry to have this service. It's almost like now become best practices in operating an apartment community, which is really you know, that's a great place to be when you're just kind of an accepted way to do business. Yeah. Wow. It's so cool. Well, if you look at, you know, you know a little bit about my businesses of several different businesses in the real estate space. Um, and just what would you say are some of the key elements um, for guys like me that own businesses um, to to also make an eternal uh, impact? Oh, wow. You know, you and I have talked about in your particular, uh, I think there's a lot of creativity to be to be thought about, about how you could maximize your spiritual returns uh, in addition to your your economic returns. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one general thing I will tell you that uh, I've found over the years, if I had to do over again, I was very late to the game and understanding the centrality of uh, people decisions and people infrastructure and the systems to attract and develop talent. You know, for me, it was all about the idea uh, early on and, and the, the the vision and the strategy. And now looking back, I, I would have put a lot more emphasis on figuring out how to make better hiring decisions, how to um, uh, develop talent more intentionally um, and these are things, you know, you have to learn over a long period of time, but, um, and that would include obviously spiritually developing them as well. Um, if, if you're coming from a Christian worldview, um, but that, but that's something and there's a lot of, uh, strategies around that. We, we use a annual survey process called best Christian workplace, and it does a, a very thorough assessment, uh, uh, survey of all of our staff every year anonymously and then compares, you know, on hundred different metrics and then compares us to organizations in our same space and, you know, a wider field of organizations. So it gives us a really objective instrument every year to see how we're doing with our people on a lot of different metrics. And I've, that's proven to be an incredibly valuable tool that I would encourage any business owner to figure out some version of that because uh, we fool ourselves, right? We think we have our view of how things are going and what people think about us. But when given the opportunity to give candid feedback and then really have the metrics to compare how you're doing on really core things like trust and, you know, do your people really believe you have their best interest at heart? Things like this, Um, this best Christian workplace, um, survey has been really helpful for us. That's great. Well, we, um, we've recently, um, done a 360 assessment, um, which has been really valuable, um, especially to Lee and I, the founders of the companies, uh, because, you know, we've got, we all put this wake off, you know, and it's either really positive or really negative, And maybe our work is putting off a wake that's pretty bumpy, um, that's causing a lot of grief um, as leaders. And I think that's a, that's a really healthy, healthy way to do it. Um, yes. And you, I want to get back to, 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 cause I sensed a little bit of, I wish I would have done this earlier as it relates to the people side, but I, I'm a little bit cloudy on what you were saying about the idea side. Cause you said, I think you said something like, you know, the idea seems to be everything, but what I've learned is that the idea is really not. What, what did you mean by that distinction? Well, uh, particularly guys like us that tend to be more entrepreneurial, you know, we, we live in a world of ideas and we think uh, about 
ideas and, and, and visions and the strategies to achieve them. Uh, Cause that's just kind of our wiring, but mm. you realize to really do anything of sustainable success requires you to bring others along and build teams and build organizations. And that's a whole different enchilada. And the idea guy thinks, Hey man, this idea is so great that if any knucklehead could come in here and, you know, pull it off and, and doesn't really put the right amount of focus on the people infrastructure. Uh, to give you an example, some of my worst mistakes have always been uh, bad hires. I just, you know, if we interview well and I like you and you tell me a good joke and we laugh and have fun together, you know, you, you're in. And, and there's a ton more science behind that, right, to really dive in. We now use an instrument called Culture Index, which is phenomenal that really gets under the hood of how well the fit is going to be both from a gifting as well as a culture standpoint. So that's just an example. All things people end up being the things that really determine success, even with a great idea because, uh, and it's, of course it's obvious now, but I just, you know, this was, I was ignorant and had a blind side to that aspect when I was, when I was younger. Yeah. Well, and so when you have now with with um, with your companies um, that you're involved with, do they all use this initial culture index? Because culture index is is awesome. I, I'm a trailblazer, by the way. OK, <laughs> so that's a um, shocker. Yeah, <laughs> right. It's a shocker. But uh, anyway, the uh, do you do you guys give the culture index to um, to somebody during an interview or prior to an interview? Without exception. And we've and we've identified the specific profiles that we think are the best fit for each job. And so, you know, you'd, you'd be hard pressed to sign on if you were a miss a culture index mismatch. Yes. Well, um, Troy Austin, who's our mutual friend that introduced us, also introduced me to the Culture Index and came to my office and kind of talked to me all about it. It was super fun. There was this point while you were um, while you were building um, apartment life that you apparently had another epiphany. Um, and that was what I mentioned in the introduction, which was the spiritual shot clock. And I'd like you to explain what the heck a spiritual shot clock is. Well, it's called the gospel shot clock. And, oh. <laughs> uh, okay. and it, and it, the, the, the germ, the seed of that idea was, uh, the, the cancer, uh, I kept fighting it back, uh, but it got pretty serious in 2011 and I was kind of running out of bullets and the, I was very fortunate that the last bullet was to have this thing called a stem cell transplant, which is a pretty intense procedure. It takes about a year. And uh, I, so I had to move down to Houston to MD Anderson and go through this procedure. And I had a lot of downtime and I read this book by George Barna called raising children to be spiritual champions. I think it was. And anyway, he laid out this really strong case of uh, if you haven't reached a person for Christ by their 13th birthday, statistically speaking, you never would. That was kind of his punchline. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I call the gospel shot clock. It starts when you're born and the buzzer goes off on your 13th birthday. And that's the statistical window that we have to really have a deep impact on spiritual formation, worldview formation, moral framework, if you will, all is pretty much settled by the time a person is 13. So that really became the trajectory. I felt that, that uh, I was to give the rest of my life to really focusing on new strategies to help reach more people during the gospel shot clock from birth to 13. So that's what that that's what that means, the gospel shot clock. <laughs> and from that notion... Um, I'm assuming that's the reason that the Lionheart's children, the Children's Academy, did I get that right? Yeah. Um, was, was born. Yeah. Right. So you, you think about it, it's a pretty natural mental progression, but if you start with the premise that you really want to have an impact on young children, mm -hmm. and then how do you do that in our culture, in our context, how do you do that? Well, the reality today is that most families are dual income. Mom and dad are both working. 75% of women now work full time outside the home. So the American reality is you've got either single parent 
uh, households or you got dual income and the children are in some version of childcare uh, starting at a very young age, like, excuse me, six weeks old and they're in childcare. Then they go into public school system. They're typically in after school programs and summer programs because again, mom and dad are both working in full-time jobs. So I began to view the childcare industry as really strategic in line with the gospel shot clock because that's where millions and millions of children were. And the vast majority of that industry is secular. It's dominated by large corporate chains. And the church has really abdicated that whole industry to secular companies. In my view, highly strategic mistake. And mm. so the, the vision of Lionheart is, is, is to help the church because they've got great facilities that are already in place that are un, kind of underutilized during the week. They've got all the means, but they don't want to be operators of these highly complex businesses. And so we come in and basically operate full-time childcare academies using church facilities, which gives us a huge cost advantage. We got big advantages uh, immediately over a secular competitor. Uh, and so we can operate these in the local church again, to achieve business outcomes and spiritual outcomes. And so what is the, um, what's, tell me about the upside for the church itself. Uh, it'll make them money. Uh, it'll bring them more young families that were previously not aware of the church. Uh, and we do all the hard work. So that's, that's kind of the simple value proposition for the pastor. And how many churches have you guys, um, uh, have you guys uh, pitched that uh, have joined the uh, Lionheart vision? We have nine locations that are active, that are open, and probably another 20 in the pipeline. It's it's exploding. This thing is going to absolutely, uh, we will be the lid for the next 20 years the, because the value proposition is now crystal clear. Right. Yeah, you're right. I mean, basically all of those Sunday school rooms are empty. Yeah, uh, six days a week, um, and so you're you're leveraging something. I just I love that. That requires it requires an entrepreneurial mind to see uh, to see an issue um, and then attack the issue with really cool solutions that have upsides for for everyone involved. And you said there was pretty significant cost savings for the family as well. Eh, that's not really our main uh, focus. We're pretty much at market rate, so we can compete heads up with, you know, best in class uh, childcare competitors. But again, we have that cost infrastructure advantage because we don't have to pay for the brick and mortar. So right. that gives us a and, and, and we do. We, there's some other dynamics involved, but but it's not like we're giving away free childcare. That's not the model. Yes. Well, um, and before we started our call, you mentioned that you've, um, just like any visionary, have, have got something else up your sleeve that you're working on. What is that? Uh, you, you mentioned a camp? Yeah, I'm pretty excited about this. This may be the most impactful thing that I've ever worked on. It's called uh, Skylark Camps, and it's basically a, 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 a an offshoot of Lionheart, but uh have you ever experienced, Craig, uh, Christian camps like uh, Pine Cove or Sky Ranch or Young Life or anything like that? Uh, I've not. Um, I went to uh, one camp when I was 15 years old, uh, but I never went to any Young Life things. Uh, I've been to Pine Cove, but it's, it was an, as an adult. Um, okay. But my kids have. Um, so you know that DNA, though, that Pine Cove DNA, uh, uh -huh. very effective but the problem with it, it's remote and it's expensive and most uh, working families will never touch it. So what we're doing, think of it conceptually, is taking that Pine Cove high quality Christian camping model, bringing it into the city and providing it all summer long uh, in church facilities for parents that are looking for a great summer, summer camp experience. Again, working moms that need something all summer. Most, most of what these camps are one week experience. You know, you go for one week and you come home. This would be more for a kid that needs a family that needs something all summer. And so we're doing our pilot location here. We're opening up in two weeks down in Cedar Hill at Hillcrest Baptist Church will be the very first Skylark camp. We've hired a bunch of ex-Pine Cove leaders to kind of dream, dream it up and put it together. 
That's incredible. And so you're, and how is this, is this also following that business tree category as well? To where yes, the cat, the camp costs money for, for families to put them, put the kids in. So they've, they've got some buy-in. Exactly. Okay. And that's, is that how it's monetized? Is just by. Yeah. Pa- parent tuitions. They pay $190 a week to uh, have their kid there. That is so cool. And it's from what time to what time? Is it a half day thing or? No, it's all day. Cause again, remember parents are working and so they need something that's uh, all day long. And so they, they may drop off the kids at seven and pick them up at five. Okay. That yeah. is just really cool. Well, I'm excited about that too. That sounds really, really neat. And so you yeah. launch and you guys were probably put off a little bit by uh, some of the current COVID stuff, I'm guessing. <laughs> Not a little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah it, it really uh, threw us a curveball. You know, we were fast ramping to to kind of get started. And it, no, it's it's wreaked havoc on us as well as everybody else. Yeah, I'm sure. Well, so um, we're running up on uh, running out of time here. But before we go, I'd love to ask you a few rapid fire questions. These are questions you can answer with just one word if you want. Uh, they're okay. just they're more for fun than anything. But if you get long winded, go right ahead. We got we got time, uh, and it's okay. Uh, so this is a hypothetical of one that came up uh, for me the other day, and um, had an interesting answer. But um, you you've got two buttons in front of you. One button says you stay here on Earth. You stay. Uh, and the other button is you go to heaven right away, like that moment. You have these two buttons. Which button do you press? <laughs> oh, my goodness. That's a crazy question. I think I'm going to stay for right now. I know. Me too. My wife was like, oh, I'd press the go button now. I'm like, wait, why? I just kind of want to stick around. I, I, I... I mean, eternity, I guess, is a long time, right? And technically, we're inside eternity, so why rush where I am? I'm not going to press the go now button. But I'm so shocked. I've been asking that question all week to my friends, and I'm so shocked by the by the responses. But you and I were on the same page. All right. Yeah, there's, too, there's, too, there's too much beauty in this world that I haven't seen yet. I'm telling you, me too. So uh, I'm curious, how do you consume the news? Oh my gosh, what a great question! Because I am absolutely. Um, in fact, I want to. One of the things I didn't tell you is I I, I have felt constrained. I cannot uh, invest my time in launching anything that doesn't have a business tree structure to it. I feel like constrained by that. So all lots of ideas that I have, I have to let go. And one of them is a news organization that takes us back to the way it used to be. <laughs> but you know what? I actually I just signed up for this deal. And it gives me a text every morning at six o'clock with the, the bullet. It's like I read it in four minutes Come and it on. gives me just the straight up news. And I love it. Really? Okay. Well, we're yeah. going to put the link to that in the show notes for sure. Cause I want that. Cause I am, a, I am not a news guy. Um, I kind of want to know what's going on. Um, but uh, I get overwhelmed by all the different stuff that gets thrown at me uh, that I can't believe 100% what's the what's the angle behind what they're feeding me and uh it's very frustrating so i'm always curious yeah. about guys like you um how you consume the news so um what time do you get up in the morning four o'clock four a m that is that is at night <laughs> and i go to bed at eight o'clock <laughs> you got me i'm a nine to fiver Oh, okay. All Man, right. I take my pants off at nine o'clock. <laughs> Done. Uh, and you're at eight o'clock. That's next level because it's freaking daylight at eight o'clock. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> it's not that bad, but I definitely, I'm up just like my grandmother. I'm up early and into bed early. I love it. Well, um, so what does, now I'm curious about this, this uh, answer. What does the first two hours look like? like? Because I'm assuming it's very similar day to day. Man, it's my it's my best think time. I've got a cup of coffee. I'm by myself. It's quiet or I'm in the hot tub and I am thinking. I am praying. I am uh, 
um, preparing for the priorities of the day, but it's really, it's more my just free, free think. I think we don't do enough of that. You know, we've got to create margin in our life to free think. You know, Einstein changed the world just with his brain and thought experiments. You know, he would just think up things in his brain. He didn't even have pencil and paper almost. And he literally changed the our entire perspective of space and time just with his brain. And I think we can crowd that out, as you said, with news and so many things that just uh, are the immediate that we crowd out time to really exercise our brains and think about what could be. I love that. What could be. That's a perfect way to put it. Uh, I was reading a thing on Einstein the other day that he would sit in an uncomfortable wooden chair and he would put a stone in his right hand and then he would go into this meditative state and and just dream and think. And if the stone fell out of his hand, it would wake him up. And then he would pick the stone back up and start again. So <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I know that that was brilliant. That's well, cool. I, it's um, I, I, you know, I, I, I'm with you on the the margin piece. You you talked about the first part of our um, our interview about having financial margin, um, and I think that the thinking margin is just as important. Um, and I, you know, I've really focused my time. Uh, I have basically I do a lot of work before lunch. Um, you know, some some days I have seven or seven hours worth of work done before lunch. Um, which is great because it gives me some freedom in the afternoon where my brain doesn't work as well. Um, but I, I usually do most of my reactive work after that first three hours of just production time where I'm, I'm, there's way more output. There's no input. There's nothing coming in my brain um, as far as things that I would have to react to. Uh, I could put things in my brain to learn but not to react to. Um, because this, this, um, that really hog ties my head, um, especially social media stuff getting in my way. Um, all my, I've got all kinds of crazy things that I do to keep, keep that time sacred. So I'm with you, but you're an hour earlier. I've never met anybody that's, that's an eight to four guy. I was, I'm always kind of bragging about my nine to five situation and you, you've just outdone me for sure. So the next question is, uh, so, um, is there anything that you've changed your mind about in the last year or two or three? There's a lot that I've changed my mind about in the theological realm. Uh, I grew up in, uh, in, in kind of a tribe within uh, Christianity that would be considered evangelical, maybe even quasi-fundamentalist in the whole worldview that's associated with that. Uh, as I've grown older and read more and uh, I'm coming to realize that there's some chinks in that armor and I'm on a journey to try to figure out where another landing place is. <laughs> but uh, that's a longer discussion than than uh, we have today. <laughs> but but I'm certainly changing my views on some long held uh, perspectives, theological perspectives um, that I think are enriching me. It's <clears throat> awesome. I love hearing that. Um Final question is what book or books do you give away the most or recommend the most? Oh, give away the most. Uh, you know what? It, it uh, I, I don't read uh, books that like a lot of people would read. I, I read a lot of books by uh, science theologians, people that are trying again to, to marry these two worlds. So John Polkinghorne, for example, is one of my favorite authors. Um, he's probably the preeminent uh, thinker and how to integrate faith and science. Um, so a lot of the books I read, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a lay, I'm lay intrigued by uh, what's going on on the frontier of science with chaos theory and quantum theory and things that we're learning about the world that are just so crazy that you just can't even wrap your head around it. So those are the kind of things that I am interested in that unfortunately I find a lot of people are not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, if, if you're, it's good to know this about you because I, I fall in that realm somewhat. I'm like, mm, that's not really for me, but now I have a friend that 
does love that. And if I ever have questions, I know who I know exactly who to call. But we'll put. Hey, that. I'm not saying I understand that stuff. I'm just saying I'm interested in it. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is awesome. Well, man, Stan, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate you taking the time to join me. Um, it's been enlightening for me and helpful to get a better understanding of what makes you tick and and how to live my life better. So uh, do you have any uh, parting thoughts? No, man. I just look forward to spending some more time together over lunch and uh, hearing a little bit more about your, your life. <laughs> I love it. Well, we will do that for sure. Well, folks, that wraps up our show for this week. If you found this interview helpful and would like to get pearls of wisdom that I've gathered along the way, go to TrueGritPodcast.com and subscribe to the True Grit blog. You will get short, helpful emails written by yours truly. Included in these posts, you will also get the show notes with links to books, articles, and other cool things I run across. Thanks, as always, for listening to the True Grit Podcast, where we believe that personal growth and helping each other solve important problems is the best way to make the world a better place. And don't forget, building a company and a life of meaning takes true grit. True Grit.